Welcome back, everybody. It is time for Dad Bod History and our latest episode. Tonight, we're going to be talking about George Orwell's 1984. Truly a masterpiece book. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, um, don't forget, everybody, like, subscribe, follow. We are on all the platforms. Check us out. I feel like everybody I talk to nowadays, I'm hyping the podcast. Do the same to your friends. And um, yeah, we would love the support. We're on TikTok now. We are TikToking like a Ooh, beast. TikTok, TikTok, TikTok. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, us a... doing dances to the <laughs> latest <laughs> fun music. Mm-hmm. That makes me sound old. To the latest fun music, the music the, it is. the kids are listening to these yeah, days. Hippity hop. Yeah. Gotta the, love it. So doing the jitterbug. <laughs> Charleston. Right? That's what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought I was cool because I still call Instagram the gram. I feel like that gives me some uh, street the cred. The gram? Yeah. Isn't that what the wow. kids call it? It's IG. Oh. It's IG, I think. Okay. Who's, uh, who's hipper in is that naming of Instagram there, Jake? Is it IG or the gram? Well, I, I thought the gram was, but... Um, I do think the kids refer to as IG now. Mm. So I think the old speak would be the gram and Ooh, the new speak would be IG. Speak. Nice. I did that. Nice. Get a reference. <laughs> it's called, for, it's called foreshadowing man. kids. Yeah. <laughs> Look it up. Just crumbs so. leading us on the way. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you guys think? What, uh, tell us about your week or any, uh, fun tales from the dad front. Hmm. I've got two good stories. So the first one, um, my two sons were in the bedroom playing and I heard my daughter's guitar fall and, you know, a guitar when it falls makes a, a sound, you hear the acoustics of it and it's like, all right, something fell over. And about 10 seconds later, my oldest son Says, Mom, Dad, something something happened. <laughs> and the door opens, and out comes my oldest, and there's my youngest. And um, it, I, I think it was kind of in the morning. But it was Saturday, so underwear and T-shirt could have been the whole day. Uh, he comes out holding his head, and then he moves his hand, and blood everywhere nice so he's got a puddle of blood that he's standing in this is when he starts crying so i panic a little bit my wife panics a little bit less my oldest son who i would totally expect to be in complete panic mode is totally controlled totally with it he's trying to explain what happened the guitar fell off a low chair just tipped over and hit my son in the head And he blamed me for it. The youngest one, he's four. He blamed me for it. He said it was my fault. I don't remember putting the thing there. Anyways, we get everyone cleaned up or get him cleaned up, get the floor cleaned up. Thankfully, it's all laminate in here. So no carpet, nothing like that. There's drops everywhere. And we get it all cleaned up and we take a look. The cut is literally one centimeter long. And just one of the the frets on the top of the guitar frets. I don't know. Perfectly. Uh Just 
ticked him. And, you know, it's the head, so it just bleeds. Uh, it's a little bit scary, you know, yeah. before the podcast you're telling me about your scare. It, for me, I freaked out a bit because once I saw the blood, I'm like, oh, my. But, um, you know, he was fine. Yeah. You know, there's there's so many different times in in childhood where you're just how did that happen? And where did that come from? That's one of those stories, totally benign and yeah. blood everywhere. I remember doing the same thing myself at my babysitter's house and I, I was running and a door or a, a window pane was open. And that was when they opened out, you know, and I ran right into the corner and there's just so much blood, but there's like nothing, nothing really there, just all this blood. So, you know, that's you know what, what that is. It, it, and as you're talking about that, I was thinking about my kids always blame me for their injuries as well. Like that is a very recurring theme in my house is they're crying and between sobs, it's like, why didn't you pick that up? Or why didn't you, you know, and it's always, I, I seem to be the, the anger magnet in that situation. Mm -hmm. Somebody's hurt. Let's blame dad for whatever Makes happened. Sense. So at least I'm not the only one there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So my second story, uh, so I've had this picture on my phone. Um, that's my home screen. Right. And I have, uh, at the time I took the picture, I only had two kids and we were in Arizona at the time. And it's a picture of my son kind of looking up at him and he's got like a beanie on. We were in Arizona at like a train park. It was December. So he was cold. And, you know, it looks up his nostrils. It looks like what could be his first album cover. Um, and my daughter's in it, too, kind of looking away. And there's a big booger in his nose. Anyways, I've had that picture on my phone for years because I love it. It's great. But I'm sitting next to my wife and I look at her phone and she's got it open. And there's always like memories and stuff that pop up, you know, memory pictures. And I saw this one. It was a black and white photo of my wife. And apparently my daughter took it with my wife's phone. I said, Oh, that that's a good picture. So I pulled it up and sent it to myself. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, this is a freaking awesome picture of you because she's looking right into the camera. So I made it my home screen. I changed out my home screen for the first time in a few years. There's a couple of pictures I have of my wife where she's looking directly at the camera. And I told her, this is one of those, I get to cap. This is a captured moment of when you look at me, for that moment, it just like gets me. And so now I have it on my, every time I pull up my phone, my heart stops a little bit, um, which could be a problem. I should t talk to a doctor, but it was just, I switched out my phone and now it's like, I look at, it, I'm like, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, you y'all have those pictures of your wife, but I don't know on my phone, it suddenly means a lot more. So that's kind of a neat moment. I enjoyed it because every day I've been like, hey, honey, look at look at what's on my phone. I show it to her. She rolls her eyes at me. And <laughs> Definite upgrade from a photo of your booger face son to your wife. I mean, that's a solid, solid Slight move upgrade. There. Slight yeah. upgrade. <laughs> and she should be flattered that, you know, it took a photo like that to unseat the booger picture. Yeah. No, I didn't say her, pic her, her picture didn't have a booger in it. I just... <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's that the would, standard that's what goes you. on my yeah. phone just <laughs> right up in there oh man so jake what you got i hesitate to say this because it might get me in trouble but well, um the deed is done yeah no here we are <laughs> um 
So last week, um, me and my wife were in the office and we were chatting uh, during the afternoon and, uh, you know, just talking about, you know, work and stuff like that. And we went out to the kitchen to get something from the office and we're continuing to talk while we're in the kitchen. And as we do, I look up and I look out into the living room and you can look at from the kitchen to the living room to straight out the house. It's all one shot. And uh, I look out the window and we have these big, beautiful windows on our front wall that look out onto the street. And I look out there and I go, my eyes go wide and I push my wife out of the way and I run towards the front of the house because my son is on the outside of the window, standing on the ledge. Just looking out. Why not? Because he was able, because the, the two side windows we have, you can open them up and you can just, and the screen was out on one of them. So he just opened up the window, crawled out in the screen and walked out on the ledge. Luckily we only live on a first floor house, but it's a very busy street. And uh, so I run out there and he's, you know, doing his best Bruce Willis and Die Hard movement, you know, and, and, uh, shimmying across the ledge of our window, grab him, bring him in. We're all like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Like that wasn't good. And, and it ultimately everything was fine. He was totally fine. He didn't even understand why we were all freaking out. He's like, yeah, what's up dad? Like, like <laughs> and, and we're like, and as we're doing it, I feel my phone buzz and I look on my phone and my neighbor across the streets, like, Hey neighbor. And there's a picture of my son standing on the window ledge. Like, nice. Oh my God, we are going to get in so much trouble here. And at least you got eyes on the kid from somewhere. You know, and our neighbor's <laughs> cool, and and their kid is, you know, they got a kid hit my son's age, and and uh, you know, he, their son is frequently out in the front yard playing. So it's like they get it, but like if it was another neighbor that like didn't get what it was like to have a four year old son who doesn't have any sense of self preservation, then it might be more problematic. But it was not, it was not our finest moment. But ultimately, everything was okay, and. Uh, JB welded those windows shut after. So everything, you know, and I feel like when, when CPS invariably comes and does an investigation, <laughs> yeah. at least you'll be able to spread the blame a little bit and say, Hey, you know, look at them too. We're not the only parents that are, you know, letting our kids outside and yeah, letting our kids outside. <laughs> That's how we'll phrase it. Yeah. 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 CPS you know, side. You no, just, you, you stay inside. You wanted some fresh air. Oh, man. Oh, but it's just one of those heart dropping moments. And we were just like, and and like I said, in the grand scheme of things, everything was fine. He wasn't hurt. He didn't even know that he was supposed to be scared. Like, and, you know, everything's fine now. But it was just like, oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah. So anyway, that'd be my big story from the past week. Nice. Well, I'm now that I kind of tried it off, tried it on for size um, prior to the podcast. In, in light of your two stories, I'm going to share this one. Um, Child endangerment. <laughs> yeah, seriously, we're all like fathers of the year here. But um, <clears throat> my youngest, she's four, and she was just hungry one day and pretending like she was fainting. So I was in the office and you know doing whatever I was doing and trying to concentrate. And I just heard running down the hall, 
was my wife holding our daughter saying, she fainted. What do I do? And something about that, I kind of half heard it. I stood up and looked out the, the door. I should have known, but you know, she was limp and lying in my wife's arms. And I could not believe how much that affected me. I mean, we all love our kids and that kind of thing, but I mean, my knees literally gave out when I saw that. So, you know, I am not going to be one of those fathers that lifts a car to save their baby or whatever. I will be, you know, needing to be resuscitated if my child ever gets, you know, bloody Mm -hmm. and and all of that. So Mm -hmm. it was just, and, and I was embarrassed how big my reaction was to it, but, uh, yeah, be crazy. Makes you think, man. Yeah. <clears throat> but thank God she was okay. And, uh, we all get to live another day as, uh, parents for now. Well, and, and you know what my <laughs> wife said, she says this often in regards to our son, she goes, I think our son has gone through more guardian angels than we could count. Like they just keep retiring. Cause you know, and like, that's just kids, man. Like, they're just always doing stuff that makes your heart lurch and you're just mm-hmm. like, Oh God, this is it. And, and luckily it's not. And you know, kids bounce and, and kids every bounce back. Time. But every time it's just like, yeah, your, your heart's in your throat. So every time my four-year-old lands from jumping off the couch, mm-hmm. I think if I did that same exact move right now on my hips and my knees and my ankles, <laughs> we would be headed to the hospital 10 minutes from now. Oh, but he just my, jumps. And I wouldn't work for three weeks. My daughter, <laughs> there you go. my daughter goes, daddy, look what I can do. And she's standing on the couch and she just jumps up and crosses her legs midair and falls on her butt or sits down on her butt, like totally in a perfect sitting position. And I'm like, my legs would snap in half if I tried to do like, they would just, I wouldn't have legs. They'd be gone. Um, <laughs> after that. And she's just like, look what I can do. It's yeah. like, enjoy it while you can. Yeah. So. And we all have a couple of those, we all have a couple of those instances in our lives where it's like, yeah, that really could have gone sideways pretty badly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, always looking back, the the common theme of that was just poor decision-making and kids don't know any better. You know, they, Mm -hmm. if if they would have had to do it again, they would have done the same exact thing and not changed Mm -hmm. a thing. But yeah, man, it's just, and, and after the fact, you try to, reason with him. And, you know, what would have been the smart decision there? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, the, the kid they're they're really incapable of assessing that danger. Daddy, mm-hmm. I suffered no consequences. Yeah. Right. <laughs> there is no lesson for me to learn here. Right. I have learned nothing. Yeah. Or if it's Eric or and me, we just get blamed for the injury. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I get blamed for stuff. My, like I said before, my son has fired me multiple times mm. anytime something bad happens to him it's all my fault and then i get he goes you're fired I'm like well <laughs> then fine i quit <laughs> so oh that's great so jake it's been a little while since we've had the uh dad jokes you got any uh to lay on us this week let me see if i got any let me pull my notes here uh my jokes from tony did I delete them all? No. I might have deleted them all. Okay. All right. So I don't have a joke 
But I do have a, a another little story that's kind of funny. <laughs> I hope I didn't say this one already. Oh no, I do have some jokes. I apologize. How do you kill a clown? Huh. How do you kill a clown, Eric? Do you know? Take a guess. How would you kill a clown? Stab it. Garrote it. Okay. okay. Camera? <laughs> Stark. <laughs> On it. I like Eric garrote it. I'm gonna I'm gonna go mafia. How do you kill a clown? You go. Ah, okay. Okay. Oh, That's totally a good one. Cut out that moment. You were close with Garoted. I thought I thought you, I, you right. totally cut out when you said it. Go for the juggler. Oh, okay. That's pretty good. That's <laughs> <All right. laughs> not bad. All right, I got one more. Um, did you hear about the guy that fell into the eyeglass machine? Did you hear about this guy? I have not heard nope. about him. No, no, it's okay. He's okay. He just made a spectacle of himself. Nice. Uh, oh man. Uh, nice. All right. There we go. That's... <laughs> so I'm going to need these go. written down somewhere so I can use these in school. Oh these yeah. Will be gold. Oh yeah. Those. Will... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the middle school boys are going to think that's just, that's just pure, pure comedy right there. Oh think yeah. You're so cool. Mr. Hoffman. Yep. <laughs> All right. That's the plan. <laughs> Those are the jokes. Dad bod jokes from Tony. Sweet. So let's jump in here, shall we? Let's do it. Let's do Water's it. nice. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. 1984. Um, I guess I'm just I'm starting this. So uh 1984, written by George Orwell. Um Born 1903, died 1950. His actual name is Eric Arthur Blair. Um, and he's probably most famously known for also writing Animal Farm, which is probably one of my favorite uh, books of all time. It's up there. And, and I think I think I may have said it in the text rant. I enjoy Animal Farm more than 1984 as far as reading it. I think it's a better um, story. But I think 1984 is more relevant to us on a on a regular basis. Um, so what else do we know about George Orwell? Uh, didn't he serve in the, the police force in India, I believe was his early adulthood is, is that he was actually a member of the, I don't know if it's the Imperial police, but he's a member of the police force in India. I believe he also in Burma in Burma. Yeah. And he also was part of the Spanish Civil War as so, well. Yeah, and I, and I want to talk about that because the Spanish Civil War is is very difficult and complicated to to kind of wrap your, your head around. It's it's simple in some ways, but the Spanish Civil War was fought between the um, the fascists who were supported by the king. Mm -hmm. in Spain um, and the other the side were called the Republicans, which we can't really, we have to take that term completely apart because the Republicans in Spain were backed by the Marxists and backed by socialists. They were backed by England and France. They were backed by American volunteers. Um, Ernest Hemingway famously involved himself in the Spanish civil war as um uh, he was there at least during that time. And he, um, what's the, uh, for whom the bell tolls 
is written about um, an American who's volunteering during the Spanish Civil War. So, <clears throat> but the Republican, those backing the Republicans in Spain mm-hmm. consisted of the Soviets and the communists, uh, as well as socialists and other groups that were actually in conflict with each other. They just opposed the fascist um, regime that was going to be put in place in Spain. So he kind of fell into that group, basically supporting a socialist group in Spain. Well, he was a socialist. And he was. He was a democratic socialist. He was part of the Independent Labor Party in Britain. Mm -hmm. So he was a socialist. But and I think that's where some people get kind of caught up in this. They, they read 1984, they see, oh, so he was against socialism. Well, no, because so we we tie socialism to some sort of authoritarianism too frequently. Um, it often leans that way, but the the socialism he was kind of well, and I, towards was democratic socialism where people vote for it. There's still freedom, but certain things are provided, right? That's kind of what you have in Britain uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Well, and I, I think it's interesting is, is when we get into the book itself, it's very interesting because he wrote this in 1949 is when mm-hmm. 1984 came out. Um, and you can see, especially in the early parts of the book where he's referring to Big Brother and Ingsoc, English Socialism, the party of Oceania. And he talks about how like there's these old party members of the original revolution and they've all been killed. And it reminded me of during the Russian Revolution after Lenin, when and especially when Stalin took over and he killed Trotsky and he killed all the old revolutionaries and he reformed the Soviet Union in his image, in Stalin's image, and he kind of abandoned, whether or not you agree with, with what Lenin and the early revolutionaries are doing, he abandoned that vision that Trotsky was going for a more pure socialist vision, mm-hmm. and he made it a communist collectivist um, ideology. And I, I saw a lot of allusion to that in the early parts of 1984, when he right. was talking about the old revolutionaries are all gone. Yeah. Well, and and one of the the things that that Orwell really struggled with is during World War Two at the, uh, you know, in the early stages of everything happening in Europe, um, England had England and France and the Western nations definitely had uh, this this time where they're opposed to Stalinist Russia and. They were opposed to Stalinist Russia, Russia because they were very anti-communist. Well, when they make this, they make this pact with Nazi Germany in 1938 to cede parts of the of Czechoslovakia over to Germany. George Orwell obviously doesn't care for this, but then shortly thereafter. When war begins with Germany, he finds that the British government has now sided with the Soviets and forgotten. They just had a massive number of purges. They've gone totalitarian, and we're going to side with them because, well, we have we have this other enemy, right? And so our enemy is changing based on the situation and based on 
in some cases, convenience, right? It's more convenient to side with the Russians right now or the Soviets right now because Germany is our immediate enemy. And so that's part of the kind of the uh, environment that he's writing this in, watching England change who they were siding with based on the situation. Yeah, absolutely. And it and it shows up, and I'm sure we'll get into this more as we get into the book. You can see that that theme shows up with how Oceania <laughs> conducts war. So what do you want to get into next? You want to talk about the use of language? Or do you want to get into a summary of what the book is about? We haven't really, I mean. Yeah, I mean, we can we can say spoilers here. <clears throat> I think yeah, I've read this I mean, book if you haven't read it, it's once. been 1949. So <laughs> I think the statute of limitations on spoilers is up. Yeah, you, you've had your chance. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, well, 1980. Oh. Real quick. So this is not real. I mean, it's related. So George Orwell Anytime people talk about like modern day America or the world or new books, they'll say, well, that's very Orwellian, you know, when they're talking about kind of dystopian futures and stuff. Do you think Orwell thought, man, everything I'm writing is really Orwellian? Like as he was writing, he's like, this is so Orwellian. <laughs> I, I doubt it. I no? highly doubt it. Okay. I'd like to say I came up with that on my own. I didn't. I read it somewhere on social media. I can't give proper credit, but it made I will, me laugh. When I, I will say it. one thing that irritates me is because <clears throat> I, I guess this is dystopian, right? This is dystopian literature. Um, there's a lot of dystopian literature now. And, and there's, there's two kinds. There's like, there's dystopian and then there's like post-apocalyptic dystopian. Yeah. And I get kind of tired of it because it's almost like some of it's very contrived and convoluted. Like here's this, this perfectly dystopian thing that we've set up just so I can tell this convoluted story. And it's frustrating because so much of it is not based in reality. And I enjoyed the hunger games, but the, the, the convoluted steps to get to that dystopian society are just wild. And I, and I can't wrap my head head around it. Mm-hmm. It just, it's like, okay, so you wanted to tell this story about Hunger Games. So then you had to build this convoluted story of a history up to this. 1984 was not that. It was like, it started like we are in 1949. And here's where it went. And mm-hmm. what's interesting is, I'd say there's places that have leaned into some of the stuff here, but um, it's not unbelievable. Well, that's what makes good sci-fi is that yeah. it's it's at its heart, it's plausible and you can you can conceive it and go, yeah, I can see how this would happen. And 1984 did that. I, I think the cool thing about 1984 as well is that um, it kind of thumbs its nose. It uses that Winston character that, you know, I really hate big brother and I hate the way that things are. And I, I want to stick it to the way that that things are. And it's not simply just uh, laying things out. It's a, it's a commentary more. I think it really does a good job of pushing back on this is terrible without saying it, without saying that, Oh, this is a terrible dystopian future. It really just 
depicts what life is like if uh, things get to that point. Whereas <clears throat> I, I feel like um, some of the other books like Hunger Games is just here are the facts. Here's what this looks like. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it was a it was a good way of telling a story, you know, with the diary and it was very mundane in some respects. Like I was telling you guys, I had a hard time reading it because it was just kind of like parts of it just kind of drag. But you get this like, you know, it's just this guy's life. And it's just the story of this guy's life and his development through whatever intervening months or years. I don't I don't know exactly how long the time period was. But as he's going through his life, you see all these things kind of come out and the picture gets a little more clear as a, you know, and it's just kind of a cool way to develop that world. I'm, I'm interested to hear you talk about, especially in the beginning, you know, you start thinking, oh my gosh, this is heinous. He gets a diary and oh my gosh, he's, he's attracted to this woman and like he's the only person there and to me that's that's riveting it's it's interesting to hear me hear you say that you know it's kind of mundane to you is that is that just because of the difference between the life we live and what winston lives um i don't know i i, I think i was just reading it from a perspective of the things he did like you know he had a roof over his head you know, and he had three squares a day, he had a job and he had social events, right? He had all these like things. And I think this is the way it was supposed to, this is the way Ingsoc, the party set things up. It's like, you have all the things that you need in life. So what else do you need? You know? And it's, I think that was, so he was kind of going through the mundane drudgery of his life. Huh. And in his mind, he's like, I think there's something more. I don't know what that is, but I think there's something more. And then you kind of learn or he kind of learns what that more is, you know, and he meets Julia and his interactions with O'Brien and uh, Charrington at the shop and all these things kind of open his world up. But he is just this cog in this machine intentionally and everybody is and is just kind of boring. Like there's no action in the, I mean, there's this, there's this perpetual war happening this whole time. And we don't see any of that other than what the telescreens are telling us, right? Like it's just a guy doing stuff throughout the day. Like, and it's not a bad story, but it's not what you would think when you're picking up a dystopian future. Cause like in hunger games, you got Katniss in her bow and yeah. he's going to go kill all these people. And, and so it's just very different than what, I think a lot of people would think it should be now to be fair. And Eric, you mentioned this, there's a lot of dystopian literature out there and not a lot of it is very good. And I would agree with that. And I think Orwell, as well as Huxley from brave new world. Um, but Orwell wrote this kind of mundane story, but you know, who else wrote a mundane story was J.R.R. Tolkien. Most of the Lord of the Rings is just them walking around. Yeah. Like even the action is, and he slew 12. Right? Yeah. Like, like 
And so I think it's just the writing style of one, the people of the forties and the fifties was a little different. Like they wanted to spend chapters and chapters telling you all this other detail. And when there is action, it's almost in passing. And, and maybe that's just the, the writing style of Orwell and Tolkien, but, and it, again, I'm not saying it was bad yeah. and, and it was interesting and it definitely got more interesting as it went on. Um, what I found really interesting was when he starts reading Goldstein's book. Mm-hmm. Um, that was fascinating to me because now I get to dissect the world at large. Um, but it, 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 I'm just saying it, it wasn't, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And, you know, I didn't read this in high school for whatever reason. I might've been the only person in America that did not read this book in high school, even though it was probably required. I don't know how I got away with that, but. Um, you read the cliff notes. <laughs> I probably did. <laughs> so, yeah. And I, I don't mean to um, hijack this conversation, but uh, that's interesting, Jake, the, the mundaneness of the story and the mundaneness of life. I, I feel like he kind of addresses that with the, with the proletariat and the entertainment, the type of entertainment they're fed by the, what the ministry of, is it Ministry of Truth? I can't remember which ministry pumps out the the music, um, the music and the simple stories and the simple songs. Yeah, and the, I think it is Ministry of Truth because they do all propaganda, right? Yeah. So it's it's all of this distraction, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, I can't help but think, you know, all the crap that's on TV, all the crap that's on the internet, all of these things that are meant to you know, and, and depending on how crazy you want to get and, and um, tinfoil hat you want to get, like, is that designed to distract those of those of us that are, you know, the, the proletariat? And, you know, is that meant to rile us up? And, mm-hmm. you know, throughout the week, we were talking about the two minutes hate um, and how, you know, sometimes you just get so dang angry. If I if I watch the news or if I whatever, you just get so angry about certain things that are going on and you can't help but stop and think and say, Whoa, you know, that that's not unlike what happened in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a, it's interesting because all the ministries here, their aims are to, to, to take whatever is there and to bring it to its minimum possible <laughs> amount and be effective. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the ministry of plenty is really about bringing as many goods down to as little as is possibly needed. And of course, each ministry has to do with also communicating a lie about it. <clears throat> but the ministry of plenty is is about making as little as possible work. The ministry of truth is about making sure that the right story is out there and only that story is out there. The ministry of love is really about restricting all choices and restricting actual love, right? Ministry of peace is really about making sure the war war does its intended thing. As you're mentioning that, Cameron, what I'd say what we're dealing with today, at least in the United States, is like the polar opposite of this. Our, Our issue is not that People are trying to constrain what is actually, well, okay, we can get to that a little bit, not trying to constrain what is actually true with what is being published, but there's so much being put out there 
which which one do you go with? Because yeah. there's no way you can consume even a a, a fraction mm-hmm. of the content that is available to you. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with the plenty. Like there's no, I have no limit of razor blades. I actually have like 50 different choices and they market it to me in 50 different ways. Uh, so, you know, and I'm not even going to get into the ministry of love because that's a whole, again, ours is a different problem when it comes to these ministries. We have too much choice, yeah, which is just as much of a problem as no choice. And the amount of mental energy that we take on a daily basis to make choices between different things yeah. prevents us from caring about what matters, actually making important decisions. Yeah. This is, um, we're getting way off topic. That's totally okay. Uh, Steve jobs. I mean, he always wore what jeans and a turtleneck. Why? So he didn't have to make a choice every day because he had bigger decisions to make every day. So he limited his own choices. If he had a wardrobe that was thousands of different items, that actually takes energy for him to choose every day. Yeah. So anyways, the, the best quote in my opinion from the book, and again, I know we're off track, but um, kind of to our point right now, um, it goes like this. The quote is the war is not meant to be won; It is meant to be continuous. All of these distractions, all of these things are, you know, so they they inundate the thoughts of everybody to the extent that so strongly that nobody can remember a generation ago. Nobody can even remember back to when they were kids. And there's a scene in the book where Winston is trying so hard to figure out is life better now or worse now than it was when I was a kid. And you guys remember this scene where he kind of corners an, an older guy who's in his eighties and he in the takes him into a pub and he yeah. tries to ask that question in a bunch of different ways. And each time the man just picks out random parts of his memory and, and just kind of rambles and isn't able to answer the question. So Winston really struggles with that because he knows in his heart that this isn't right, but he can't reconcile it because there's nothing he has no evidence past that he can compare it yeah. to. So uh, let me ask you, Cameron, that quote, um, the war is not meant to be won. Yeah. Is that from Goldstein's book or is that from another? It, it, I, I'm looking at the context here and yeah, it, it looks like it's from an expert excerpt from Goldstein's book. I'm pretty sure it is. Although I will say this, Cameron, when you mentioned the old man in the pub, and when I read that, it was interesting because Winston is getting increasingly frustrated yeah. because the old man won't answer his question. But each time the old man speaks with his aside and his story, if you if you look at it or if Winston looked at it closely, you would see that life was better when the old man was young because the stories he's telling are stories that will never happen again. Like that's what was so interesting mm. is he's like, Oh, well, remember that rich Lord. And I popped him in the mouth and like, you know, and he was reminiscing about the good old days, but to Winston, he's not seeing that. Like Winston just wants to hear the simple answer. That's a good point. He wants a yes or no, better or worse, which mm-hmm. makes me think Winston has been conditioned by the, mm. 
by the party to only care about the simple, right? Because everything about the yeah. parties, the simple. We want to keep it so simple and concise. Yeah. Wow. The old man is getting all verbose and going off about like all these other things. And yeah, we let me can't see the forest through the trees, so to speak. Paint that. He's trying to paint that picture, right? He asked him, he's like, did you have to bow down to capitalists? He's like, oh, you know, this one guy had a top hat, a capitalist, and I got in a scrum <laughs> with him and punched him. It's like. But you remember in the man, he's like, man, and those, he's like, those top hats were nice. Like he yeah. was talking about, like, I really wish I had one of those hats. Yeah. Like it's not this enemy that it was just so fascinating, that interaction between those two. Yeah. So I, th- I think that leads us into this this point of how language is a primary part of this novel, right? We have a couple things. We have old speak, we have new speak, we have um, a double think, right? The ability mm-hmm. to say something and and like basically to contradict it in your mind. Um, <clears throat> and I think this is interesting because I know. I put out a little blurb on TikTok earlier where I mentioned, you know, there, there's a lot of people, even myself uh, a couple of years ago said kind of aiming at the leftists in the West as using 1984 as a playbook rather than a clear warning to how this stuff works. And I wanted to clarify because I, I don't think it's just people on the left. I do think you know, your, um, your far right groups use this essentially 1984 is a warning for individuals to watch out for how watch out for state actors will act. Because I think the collective, just like the individual vie for power, you know, and they're, they're kind of on this, this line, right. And individuals work against the collective and the collective works against the, the individual only because they, they're, they're opposed, they're diametrically opposed. So the collective is going to seek power for itself, just like the individual seeks power or freedom for itself. <clears throat> so I think the whole thing about language is this is what every controlling entity has done in some form or another throughout history. I mean, you, you could say the King James Bible the King James wanted to use that as a tool for language and for better or worse. Um, you know, the fact that Martin Luther translated the Bible into German actually laid the groundwork for German to be a unified language. <clears throat> so language is powerful. Um, in this book, it's so powerful that by simplifying terms over time, we get to the point where Winston cannot actually listen to a story from an old man in the pub who's giving you details that are answering your question, but he can't handle it because it's, it's too verbose. There's Mm -hmm. too much information and Mm -hmm. he needs a simple answer because everything's being simplified. And as O'Brien states later on, we're going to get it to the point where, you know, things are not incredible or amazing. They're, they're double plus good or, you know, they're ungood. And if you can control language like that, you can change how people well, think. Yeah, no, I agree. And can I read, there's a quote from Syme, who was the guy that was working on the dictionary, the 11th yeah. edition. And when he's talking to Winston earlier in the book, and it says, we're getting language into its final shape. We're destroying words, hundreds of them every day, 
We're cutting the language down to the bone. It's a beautiful thing, the destruction of words. And, um, and that just tells you the intent of the party and, uh, and what the goal is there is, is, and it, well, and they tell you in the appendix, um, it was intended that new speak had been adopted. Once new speak had been adopted, heretical thought should be literally unthinkable because right. It wasn't, it wasn't the action. It was the thought that was the problem. And so if you can remove the ability of the thought to happen, then you remove all thought crime and you remove all heretical impulses. And that's what the goal of that language was. So, and it's, it's powerful too, because Winston and Julia cite this uh, comment a couple times in the book when they say they can, they can um, mandate us to behave a certain way. They can get us outwardly to obey all of these commands and these rules and be good, thankful. Um, but they cannot steal what happens inside our brain. They, they don't, that is, and that, and that we own that they can never get to. But when language is controlled to that extent, very quickly, that becomes harder and harder to keep your thoughts to yourself because you don't have the language to have those thoughts and to, have, to be able to express that to another. So thought crime becomes impossible. I think, yes. Um, I think one of the, the correlations we'd make to today, and I, and I can give two examples kind of in the realm of, of current politics without getting into politics, but so like the term socialist, there's, there's, at least in the United States, there's a whole half of the country that if you said socialist, one half of the country is, has, already has a predefined idea of what socialist means. And it has, we've expanded and contracted the definition of socialist to basically be bad. Socialist bad mm -hmm. like that's not that's not very different from newspeak because we're, we're taking that that term socialist which has a thousand iterations across dozens of nations you know there's thousands of parties that stand for socialism in one form or another some do have a an authoritarian like slant others do not it, it's it's more complicated than bad, right? You could, there's other terms as well that have expanded meaning and, and are beginning to expand and like take over other ideas. And we could take a term like racist. Well, you can just throw it on anything and say, and, and link it through, you know, five degrees away and say, well, that's also racist because of that. That's another term that has gotten kind of expanded over the past years. Now that's tricky and that's dangerous. I'm not saying it's bad or good to change language because language has to change, but it is dangerous because it changes how people think about an idea. You know, words matter, ideas matter. That's a quote that I put in my classroom because the words we select matter because we've got what, 50,000 words, and each one is a little bit different. 
So when you start to remove them or redefine them or change them or expand them or contract them, there's danger there. Uh, again, could be good or bad, but it's it's dangerous for words to expand or contract if you, you don't if it hasn't happened naturally because there there are people and it's happened on both sides that have contracted and expanded language in a way that that makes it difficult to have conversations because that's the point of language right to convey ideas and to communicate um, to agree and, and disagree and if you can't agree on the words you're using it becomes impossible to have conversations and you then simply just label each other good or yeah. bad or ungood, yeah. I guess, if you want to go that far. Yeah. And, and we talked about this on the tech strand this week is like, we have all three of us, all four of us in, uh, you know, regular contributors to Dadbot have a lot of dissenting opinions on politics, on life, on religion, on, you know, some really poor things. And I count you guys as some of my best friends. And it's just interesting how I, I think it's really important for us to have these type of conversations because if you don't, then that language shrinks and it becomes taboo and you all of a sudden can't talk about these things. So yeah, I mean, how, how many conversations have you had with somebody in the last year? You know, we'll just use Corona and the conversation, the 30 second conversation ends with, Oh, it's a crazy world we live in. And it's like, no, I, I hate that because that's, that's skirting the issue. And uh, I mean, and, it's and crazy Eric's laughing. There, Cameron, you're right. It's crazy. Exactly. <laughs> Eric's laughing because it's true. And I just, I absolutely hate that. And it makes me really, really uncomfortable because these things that are happening in the world. Yeah. Some of them are good or some of them are bad, but <clears throat> without a discussion about that and without being able to defend your position on something, you know, it just becomes a shouting match or it becomes really ugly. And that's how um, division happens. Well, and, and I think that's it's the dangerous part. And I think it's intentional um, from all parties involved. And I don't just mean political parties. It's intentional. Um, I think Democrats, um, you know, use language to divide themselves from Republicans or Republicans do the exact same um, thing. And uh, conservatives don't do that, Jake. How dare you? Yeah. Conservative Christian patriots and, and libertarians. <laughs> libertarians do that to divide themselves from each other. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, libertarians are the most divisive people on the planet. And there's no one that can tell me otherwise because they don't even like other libertarians. It's uh, fascinating. They hate each other. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're I guess, not libertarian enough. I mean, I guess that means they're consistent. I don't know, but um, sure. I, yeah, that, but it, you're stretching the use of that word, Jake, quite a bit. It is fascinating, <laughs> though. Is like how intentional the divisiveness is, and it's not just you know. And and, and I think when you watch people on the news or politicians in particular. And what they do is they spin and nobody ever really engages in open, open, honest discussion or very rarely do they, right. um, at least not for TV. And, and so what they do is they say, well, here's the sound bites I want to have. And they set the parameters for how they want to approach the subject or the debate. And Eric, I know this is something you and I were discussing when it was, um, 
Nance Omar. and no on the well, Bill Maher on, show, but Nance and Ben Shapiro. And yeah. I said, well, Nance isn't going to answer the question Ben Shapiro wants because the way Ben Shapiro is asking the question is to elicit a, a very specific response. And so part of the problem isn't just that the words we use are being muddled, although I do think that's true. The way we're using them and the way we're engaging in discourse is intentional to not enlighten but to confirm our own bias. And I think that's the problem is that we don't approach debate honestly or openly. And I think if you were to say one thing that we need to fix in America's education system, it would be teaching children and young adults how to engage in rational discourse more than almost any subject. It's called rhetoric. It is rhetoric. rhetoric. Well, and that's what, that was the Greeks thing, right? Like they had different schools of rhetoric and, you know, you had your sophists and then you had your, the Platonic school and the Aristotelian, like you had all these different, and then the Stoics, um, you had all these different schools of thought. And so it wasn't so much, what do I know, but how do I think that Mm -hmm. matters? And how do I reason with one another that matters? And like you said, Eric, we have so much choice today. And so many options, which is one of the blessings of democracy. And I'll say the benefits of living in a wonderfully rich country with a capitalist system that encourages abundance. But the downside of that, how to reason within ourselves or with each other on what choices are the correct ones from us. I'm not going to say good or bad because every person is different, but what are the correct decisions for us and what's the correct course of action? And I think in 1984, the party, Ingsoc said, you don't have choices anymore. We're gonna take that away from you because really freedom is slavery and all these choices aren't for your benefit. So why don't you just let us deal with that, right? That that was their solution. Right. The abundance of the machine. That's what Orwell but called it. The they, machine and the, the industrial revolution gave people too much and they yeah. didn't know how to deal with it. So, yeah. And so that that's true. And I, and I want to kind of address part of that. But one of the things that, that happens in his meeting with O'Brien late in the third part is, is Winston tries to say it's for the good of the people. And O'Brien corrects him. He's like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's for power. Yeah. And A, I think a lot of people believe and our best villains, our best, not the most memorable, well, probably the most memorable, the best villains in literature and in history have done so because they they started trying to do what was good for the people in their mind. And by the end of it, all they wanted was the power. Right. The quote, and sorry to interject, Eric, yeah, no, but the ahead. quote itself is, the object of terrorism is terrorism. The object of oppression is oppression. Mm-hmm. The object of torture is torture. The object of murder is murder. The object of power is power. Now, do you begin to understand me? Yeah. yeah. So, I, you know, it's, in some ways, it is good for the proles and the party members that the party does everything for them. It's good in some ways, but that's not the object of it. The object is power. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which brings me to something I brought up before. 
and I, and I've talked about it previously and I, and I didn't put it in the, in these notes for tonight, the idea of virtue, like if, if you're going to have a free open society, like we have today, it will work as long as people are virtuous. But if people are going to opt not to embrace their own virtue and, and expand their own virtue and grow that and develop it, mm-hmm. the virtue still needs to exist. It just needs to come from somewhere else. And I think in this novel, the virtue comes from the party. The party provides you with the virtue. So you don't need it for yourself. Um, and and there, were, there must, I honestly can't remember what I was, there was another novel I was reading um, that made me think about this. Oh, it was Starship Troopers. It was a similar thing, right? Mm-hmm. There was a moral decay in the West. So if there's a moral decay, if there's a, a decay of virtue, somebody needs to provide it. And in the case of both Starship Troopers in 1984, the state, the party, the collective tells you what your virtue is. Um, and, and I think, I mean, without saying we're going into moral decay today, do we provide our own virtue? Do we develop our own individual virtue? Or are we going to require the state to do it for us? Well, I think for a long time, in the West in particular, the church, be it corporate or individual, was the primary virtue provider, at least of most people from European descent. Um, And I would say the organized religions of Islam and Judaism would do the same for their adherents. I think since the Western nations like America and Europe have become more secular, that's been the big question, right? Is where do we get our virtue from? And I'm not saying virtue in like, do you follow God, but in the virtue in that self-sacrificing service that we like to emulate from George Washington and and, and a lot of the earlier founders. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the answer to that question is where do we get our virtue from? And if not from ourselves, do we get it from the state? That's a good question. I don't know if I have an answer though. I think that's kind of a, there's a lot of dichotomy to what I'm about to say, but on one hand, people are good enough to be trusted with their own decisions and there needs to be freedom of choice for parents or for, um, you know, how to raise your children and, how to um, make your choices medically and how to spend your money and all of those things. But at the same time too, people, you know, as as Lutherans, we, as, as kids, every single Sunday, we said that, you know, I am by nature a poor and miserable sinner. I'm unwill, unable to bring myself to, um, to Christ. So at the same time, we are, terrible, horrible, and, and won't do anything good unless we have personal incentive to do so. But at the same time, we need to be given the opportunity to run our own lives. Um, 
and we need to have as much responsibility, even, even if that person is somebody that we disagree with, that person needs to have as much say so and responsibility in their lives as possible. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword very much. And, uh, you got to have that balance or else it all falls apart. I think the difficulty there, as I've, as I've worked through a lot of this stuff over however many years, the more our society kind of depends on other people. I mean, the, the more I interact, the more you're in an urban setting versus a rural setting versus a suburban setting, the more that grows, the more, it, the, the more trade-offs you might have to make to make that work. Because if you're living in a city with 5 million people, you're going to have 5 million different opinions as opposed to 300 in a small town. You have to have a foundation. You have to have a baseline for everyone to operate. And the more people you have, the more that changes as opposed to something like 300 people living in the same area. And I think it's tricky because I don't want to give up any freedom. I don't want to give up any rights but I do have to live with other people and I do have to operate in a way that, that helps both me and these other people work together in society to make it beneficial. And I don't have an answer, but it's tricky well, because there's, there's dozens of things that I give up that I want in order to have but these these other people available to me and, and their their abilities and services and talents. Um, it's tricky. It's tricky, and I don't know how this fits into 1984. But but I think you we, have to. Yeah, we're we're way off script now. But I think that you have to weigh: is it worth the <clears throat> the shame, the ridicule of making a unpopular decision you you have are, are you willing to live with the consequences of that decision because you know freedom is important and you need to have freedom at, at all costs and you know but if not are, are you willing to pay that price of conformity of group think of whatever that case is um you know you can use the example of <clears throat> homosexual marriage or something like that? Are, are you willing to, you know, if that's truly the choice that you feel is the best choice to get married to a person of the same sex, are you willing to undergo that backlash or that attention, good or bad, from making that choice? And some people are are willing to make that choice and some people are not. But you know, at the end of the day, you have to be able to make that choice and defend that choice and live with that choice. Well, I, I think it, I think there's a, a, not a policy. The, um, um, libertarians would refer to it as a non-aggression principle. And it's simply that I can do whatever I want until it 
impacts the rights or property of somebody else. And so that's tricky. That's tricky because where does it come with language? Does, can, does my language be considered aggressive? And I think most libertarians would say, no, unless you're actually calling for something to happen to somebody and egging that on, you can say whatever you want. But no, the non-aggression principle is I cannot remove rights from somebody else. So that's tricky because if I drive recklessly, that violates the non-aggression principle. If I drive aggressively with other cars on the road, that violates it. So there's there's some things there that, again, I, I, I went kind of off, as we had talked about virtue and society, away from 1984. And I, I take your point that I'm not sure on a day-to-day basis if I can say everything that all my rights always remain intact because sometimes they might impact others. And in well, those and, cases, they aren't my rights anymore. Well, and, and it, or go ahead. Sorry. I'll let you finish. No, that, that was kind of, that was it. I mean, I think part of it, I, I think is framing the discussion. What are we talking about with rights and what are we talking about with, I guess, giving up those rights. If we're talking about in reference to being a citizen of the United States of America, our rights are pretty clearly defined in the constitution and subsequent Supreme court cases. Um, but also as part of being a citizen of the United States of America by function of that, we are no longer individuals. We are part of a much larger group. And as such personal liberties, I'm not going to say constitutional rights, but some of our personal liberties get abrogated depending on the circumstance. I mean, I can't, you know, there's building codes, there's traffic laws, um, there's all sorts of laws and rules that restrict our ability to do what we want when we want that we accept as part of the cost of being a citizen of this country. Um, now, the debate over those personal liberties has grown and changed over the past year and a half specifically in regards to masking and vaccinations um, and public health. But in essence, that's what we're discussing without discussing it, I would say, right. That's what we're all kind of going. I don't know what you're talking about, Jake. I have no (laughs) idea what you're talking about. I was talking about the rights not to quarter foreign soldiers in my house, but yeah, you know, whatever. No, that's fine. So, I I mean, that's, (laughs) and that's, that's a fair discussion too, Eric. Um, But I I think when when it comes to our rights, um, for me personally, I I would say when it's a public health issue, um, curtail circumstances. And this isn't a public health issue. This is a war issue. Um, When World War II happened, um, the decision was just kind of made. You're all being rationed now, and now you have to convert all these factories into war production and all these things into war production. And it just sort of happened. And then when the war ended, things went back to normal. And I view the pandemic similarly in that we are in a crisis and that during a crisis, what we consider our individual liberty can be curtailed. Now, the federal government hasn't really done anything to do that. 
curtailing. They haven't actually instituted mask mandates or vaccines other than for their own employees. Um, but state governments have, and certainly California, um, Eric, you said, got their hand slapped a couple of times um, in regards to shutting down schools and churches. And rightly yeah. so. Yeah. But, so Supreme uh, but, Court or Ninth Circuit actually said you can't, yeah. you aren't allowed to do that. But when it came to masks, they said you actually are able to do that. That's something that you can do as a state because you have a health department, you have a governor that's within your powers, shutting down schools and churches. You're not allowed to do that. So those things are settled, but there's still battles. But I think your point's a good one, Jake. And I I would say World War II is a good example. We kind of talked about this the other night. It Mm -hmm. went back to normal. But those are the 1940s and 50s. Sure. Institutional trust was at an all-time high. And institutional trust today is at an all-time low. So to say, when this is over, we're going to go back to normal and everything will, we're going to just hand everything back. People don't believe you. Or people don't, not you, Jake, but people don't believe that that's going to happen. Yeah. Even though it, it's very likely that it could. But again... Back to 1984, power begets power. And as a collective takes some power, in most cases, it doesn't, it's not given back. And it's also that kind of like compliance creep. Like we're willing to comply mm-hmm. here and here and here. And mm-hmm. then then 10 steps down the road, you're like, wait, what are we complying with? And so it's tricky because we don't know what's going to happen next. Um, But we do what's, what's actually kind of working in some way. And I know we disagreed with this way back when we talked about pandemic to progress, Jake, um, was that um, there should have been a bigger federal response. But right now what we're actually seeing is we're seeing the, the federal government in terms of 50 different States, actually taking different approaches. It might be a mess in some places, but it is allowing us to see certain things work in certain circumstances. Um, But let's jump back to 1984 a little bit. Unless Cameron wants to have a little piece. Um, Yeah. What I was going to try to say is hopefully going to loop us back in, but you know, we're talking about an extreme case of 1984 and thought crime and um, telescreens and and controlling every single thing. How does that process start? That process starts with, you know, tiny little concessions made. And then that that happens bigger and bigger and bigger. And another um, quote that I think will lead us into the next discussion pretty well is um, this goes along with the tyranny for the sake of tyranny and so on. Um, Maybe the best quote in the whole book, it says, one does not establish a dictatorship in order to safeguard a revolution. One makes the revolution in order to establish the dictatorship. So everybody thinks that, you know, they're going to get power and then they're going to be benevolent and take care of everybody. But, you know, at the, at the heart of the matter is we are all sinful and um, we all crave that power and establish that dictatorship. So, you know, left or right, Republican, Democrat, whatever, um, everybody seeks that 
to some extent. Well, then playing devil's advocate, does that mean the American Revolution was set up, was established to set up a dictatorship? I I'm think it was on it right now. I think it was <laughs> took 240 years. huh? I, I think it was <laughs> self-serving to a certain extent. I mean, as great as a, of a man that George Washington was, I mean, I, I think he had some skin in the game. He, he wanted things a certain way. And, and that was self-serving to him. Um, he didn't just do it because he was a great guy. Oh, definitely. He did it to protect his interests. I mean, right. he was a very, very rich man with a lot of land and didn't want yeah. to pay tax. Okay. I was just thought it played devil's yeah, advocate. That, no, good question. That, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the founding fathers definitely had an interest. They weren't 100% self-sacrificing. Right. That said, doesn't make the work they did in the documents any less true or profound or helpful or, you know, they're, they're good documents. They're a fantastic foundation for a very flawed group of people. Um, well, they, they acknowledge that, that. Yeah people are, are flawed and, and let's try to do our best to get out in front of that. That's why it's worked for 240 something years. I do want to, uh, so there's another quote I wanted to look at and it's um, there's a couple quotes actually that tie into this. Um, and it's when Winston says freedom is the freedom to say that two plus two makes four. If that is granted, all else follows. And then when you go to Goldstein's book, um, he says something uh, kind of towards the end and he said, um, he said in the past also war was one of the main instruments by which human societies were kept in touch with physical reality. So he's saying war helps you understand reality. Yeah. All rulers of all ages have tried to impose a false view of the world upon their followers, but they could not afford to encourage any illusion that tended to impair military efficiency. So long as defeat meant the loss of independence or some of the result generally held to be undesirable, the precautions against defeat had to be serious. Physical facts could not be ignored. In philosophy, in religion or ethics or politics, two and two might make five. But when one was designing a gun or an airplane, they had to make four inefficient nations were always conquered sooner or later and the struggle for efficiency was inimical to illusions. So I, I found that interesting because about a year ago, um, somebody on, on Twitter basically posted two plus two equals four, you know, in the debate over language that was occurring in the middle of last year. And what was funny is that a bunch of people, mathematicians, scientists, these professors would come in and basically reply to him and say, well, you know, some cases, if you have two oranges and two apples, you ha might have four fruit, but you actually have the potential for like five trees or, you know, you actually have, um, you know, you, you've got your two apples and two oranges. But you also have two pears. So that makes six. And, and <clears throat> in philosophy and religion, we can make two and two mean something else. You can say 2.5 plus 2.5 equals five. You can come up with all these convoluted things. And they did. They came up with dozens of convoluted ways where two plus two actually equals four. But the point he was making is that 
that's not where anyone starts. And if you ask anyone what two and two is, it means it's four. And he was absolutely lambasted and ridiculed for saying two plus two equals four. And that comes back to the first quote. Freedom is the freedom to say that two plus two makes four. Mm-hmm. It's actually not that complicated. And he took a huge Twitter front for that. Mm. Um, it was fascinating to watch people come up with ways that two plus two does not equal four. And they're missing the point that he's saying you're, you're convoluting language for your own ends. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that, that language thing is if you can control language and narrative, you can, you can aim everyone's eyes in a different direction in the direction that you choose and you can frame things so you can tell the story you want kind of like Jake and I mentioned Ben Shapiro and Malcolm Lance, both trying to frame the argument in their way and, and ignoring a lot of context around both of what they were trying to frame. So it becomes impossible to have a conversation. I think that that whole interview lasted 12 minutes. That's not, that's not enough to have that conversation that they were going to have. Well, it was about critical race theory. Like it was about all these heavy topics Yeah, and, and, they were just going for the zinger and, and I mean, and that's what I hate saying this. That's what the media caters to. Um, But but that that's what I hate willing to buy. No, I know. But I I, I do think, and I'll, I I listen to maybe two podcasts, one political one and one sports one, and that's it outside of this one. This and one, this I'm, one, obviously, hello. obviously this one. This is all of that but wrapped into one. It is. That is. That's what I mean. One equals three or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> but the, the point being is I, I do think there's a lot of new media out there, pod, podcasts and, um, and the like that allow actual discussion and encourage it. Um, and, and I appreciate that. And I wish more... And I'm not going to just say mainstream, but yeah, mainstream legacy media would do that. And I wish a lot of uh, talk radio and what you'd consider right-wing media would do that as well. Because I think really none of us are looking for answers. We already think we have the answers. We're just looking for Basically. ways to make the other side look bad, right? Mm-hmm. That That's really the goal. Um, yeah. So it, it's just, but again, that's not necessarily what we're talking about in 1984 although it ain't that far off um you know in in terms of o'brien when he was uh, when he had winston um in room 101 and and before then and he was saying anything winston tried to come up with o'brien had already curtailed the discussion to his end like he already knew how the discussion was going to end Right. He goes, oh, I bet you're thinking right now, how could I possibly do this? Well, let me tell you. And then he would give him an answer. And then, and so nothing Winston could say. He says, everything, Brian, everything I try to say, O'Brien already has the right, correct answer. He goes, but I'm right. I know I'm right. I just can't articulate mm-hmm. it. And I think that was yeah. what was so frustrating. And, well, and that's, really that's what the change in language does. Yeah. When you, you can, you can get an idea in your head and you just can't articulate it because the words aren't there for you. But I think in, in that moment, there's, we also get to thought crime and that this term has been thrown around a lot in the past few years. And like, what are ideas that you're allowed to hold 
that don't put you outside. And, and so this is an actual theory. It's the Overton window. And I don't know if you've heard of the Overton window, but the Overton window is within that window are things that can be discussed and are allowed to be discussed. Anything outside the Overton window is not up for discussion. So something outside the Overton window would be like, did the Holocaust happen? Sorry, that's outside the Overton window. Like we're not discussing that. If you're if you're questioning the the existence of the Holocaust, that's outside the Overton window. The problem is the Overton window moves and it changes and it and it constricts. And so certain things that we want to have discussions about, oftentimes in good faith, sometimes in bad faith, <coughs> are just they're outside the Overton window and said, no, if you're thinking that, you are wrong. And you are a bigot, socialist, communist, thought um, criminal, criminal, you know, you're a thought criminal. If you are outside that Overton window, you cannot be talked to. And, and, you know, you can see that in a bunch of cases in, in all directions. So, hmm. I mean, thought crime is becoming something that that's, that's up there because if, if you're not allowed to say certain things, or you're being told that you have to say certain things. Um, those are your thoughts. I mean, talking and writing are forms of thinking. We need to be able to do both of those. And would if you we think, can't. Go ahead. But, I was going to say, would you think Galileo would have been outside the Overton window in regards yeah. to the well, Catholic Church? Yeah, because Church? He, was, he was tried for what he wrote down. Yeah. So that mm -hmm. at that time. I was, that was so it's giving you a historical example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anything that basically says, no, we're not sorry, that's not up for discussion, is outside the Overton window. The problem today is it's no, it's not just that's not up for discussion. It's that's not up for discussion. And you are also a, and put whatever label on it you want that's now stuck to that person. Mm -hmm. um, that is just, it's stuck to them. And, and now you can't get rid of it. And you're, you're considered whatever that term is, uh, which means nobody will have a discussion with you which means your thoughts are now, all of your thoughts are thought crime. Well, that's a problem. Yeah, and I, you know, whoever the bad guys, the, the modern day bad guys are, whether that's the left or the right or the political elite or, or you know, the Trump fans or, or whatever, there's there's different ways of going about that. Sometimes it's, you know, somebody into compliance or staying within that ever-changing Overton window is, are you going to physically threaten them? Are you going to treat them as, oh, they're just not that smart. They're a dumb redneck. Or, you know, there's a million and one ways to do that, to um, elicit that type of behavior. And it's, it's interesting, but it's all controlled around back to, to that point of restricting language and getting everybody around orthodoxy. And orthodoxy is the right way to think. And everybody that's outside of that orthodoxy is labeled a certain way. And it's just, it's, it's sad to see how this um, in the world, you know, people make it their identity on how they feel about one single subjects. You know, I'm an anti-masker and I can't possibly be seen in public with a masker. It's just 
absolutely out of the out of the question. Is this and a for you, instance? Um, I think he's, yeah, uh-huh, I think he's sure. calling me out right now. <laughs> I ever see any of you with a mask on, it's over. No, um, it, it's scary, man. It, it gets so heightened that, you know, and then oh, Lord knows we can't talk about it. And then it becomes even more taboo. And it's amazing how this stuff can, can spiral. And again, you know, 1984 is an extreme example, but here we are. And, and I think it's so poignant that we're talking about this now because we're, we're living the beginning stages of it. So well, it's, I, oh, go ahead. Jake. I was just going to say, it's interesting because when you were describing the Overton window, which is something I'm not familiar with until just now, but it would seem like there's multiple Overton windows, depending on the group you're in oh, yeah. or talking to, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, what, what might be verboten to the left is totally fine being talked about on the right. And then there's a whole group in the middle that we never talk about, you know, that largely, you know, but that's part of the problem, right? If you're in the middle, what the heck are you doing in the middle? You got to join mm-hmm. one of the camps, right? right? And and there's all these. So I, I think it's an interesting discussion it, um, regarding that. And I think you, you guys and myself have a problem with it because I think we're probably willing to talk about anything because we just like to discuss different topics. Um, but I can see these, you know, Republicans have, what is it, the term rhino, Republican in name only, and progressives have their purity tests. And if you don't pass the purity test, you know, then you kind of get thrown out of the party. And I I would say in terms of what we can talk about or can't talk about, depending on those groups, um, it can shift. And it's upsetting because, as we mentioned before, it doesn't really lead to good discourse. And while I probably wouldn't want to discuss with a Holocaust denier because I probably don't think I could change their mind. Um, if there was someone who wanted to discuss, Hey, what's the Holocaust all about? I don't really know anything about it. Like, well, yeah, let's talk. But you know, and, and I think part of the problem is I'm sure there's plenty of people that ask questions that fall outside of the Overton window that are in good faith, but there's also a lot of people that ask those questions not in good faith. And I think that's, those are the people I wouldn't want to discuss with because it would be a waste of my time. Um, I'll discuss anything with anybody. If it's in good faith, I don't know if I would do the same um, if it wasn't. And I think that's the, that's where I fall, I guess, on that little topic. Yeah. That's a good point because here we are tonight talking about um, discourse and talking in good faith and everything, but there's a certain time and place where you have to pick your battles and you have sure. to say, and I that's don't where you owe bring you your an five. explanation. Yes. <laughs> Every man's got to have his five. When the time for talking is over. <laughs> <laughs> so I did want to wrap up our conversation on 1984, um, kind of going to the last scene, which I, I remember the last scene vividly from the first time I'd read it. And as I was listening to it in the car yesterday and finished it up, I was like, there's a lot that I missed. And the last scene, again, spoiler alert, he's, it it seems like he's been in the ministry, I think, of of truth for a while, right? Is it the ministry of truth? Mm -hmm. He's in that building. It seems he's being rehabilitated, right? He's got some, he's got some meat back on his bones. He's healthy. 
and he's watching the telescreen. And what's happening on the telescreen is that Oceania is winning a, vi- a, a battle. They're losing. They're losing a battle. Yeah. And then they, then they win like a masterstroke, one of the greatest victories in human history. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, then he kind of, he, he's in several different places at once. It seems like he, he thinks he's back here. And, you know, as the, as the bullet is entering the back of his head, he looks up and realizes, Oh, under big brother's mustache, there's a big smile. I love mm-hmm. big brother. And that's the thing I was missing. And so kind of the sad ending, I guess, for those that were rooting for Winston is that his mind as much as he wanted it to be hating Big Brother at the very end, his mind had changed. And there's a there's a couple things in there that that made me think that's a perpetual war. So how much of that war is manufactured for the telescreens? Manufactured for the public in terms of we're losing this war or we're winning this war or it's going to keep going. But for those who've entered room 101 and for those who are about to take that walk down the hallway and get their final bullet, is it manufactured specifically for them to see that victory is in sight? Mm -hmm. Like was that telescreen only broadcast into that room for those people because they in their last moment were finally going to change their mind and love big brother. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was the thought that I that I had as I as I read this last one. Like that scene on that telescreen <clears throat> seems off. It seems to me that it was manufactured specifically for them because mm-hmm. huh. everything in this society is manufactured yeah. for a purpose. Every piece of writing, everything designed to elicit a reaction. The two minutes hate is designed to elicit a specific reaction. And so in the moment when they, when they brought this person back from being at the bottom, once they've been rehabilitated, they still think they want to hate big brother. But in that last moment, they find the one way that they can change their mind is to show them a great victory. Mm-hmm. And that that's the only thing I could, I could think of at the end. It was really interesting because I, I thought the same thing. I'm like, this doesn't seem right. As I was reading that last scene, I'm like, it doesn't seem right that Oceana would broadcast that they might be losing unless it was for some other purpose. And and then when it happened, I'm like, they did this intentionally. And I thought the same thing. Did they do it just for Winston or did they do it, you know, for the people at large? Because if the people didn't fear feel the fear of possibly being invaded and losing, then the victory is all the more sweeter now because they're like, well, we were in real danger of not just losing a battle, but possibly being invaded. And then all yeah. of a sudden this masterstroke victory, and it's like, Oh, it's even better. Now we're going to celebrate in the streets. And, and so I, I did think the same thing. Um, and I did have one more thought though, and it's the appendix of the book. And I just want to read just a little bit from it. Um, News speak. 
Newspeak was the official language of Oceania and had been devised to meet the ideological needs of Ingsoc or English socialism. In the year 1984, there's not yet as anyone who used Newspeak as his sole communication, either in speech or in writing. The leading articles of the Times were written in it, but this was a tour de force which could only be carried out by a specialist. So I read that passage, which is the first part of the first paragraph of the appendix, mm -hmm. because the appendix is written as if it's in this world. Yeah. But it's in this world in the future. And what's fascinating is that they refer to Newspeak was the official language of Oceania, which means it implies that Oceania fell sometime between 1984 and when the appendix was written and that Newspeak never took hold the way that they wanted it to. And the, the appendix kind of goes into why explaining how Newspeak was. And basically it comes down to, it was too complicated to translate everything into Newspeak. There was no way you could write the Declaration of Independence in Newspeak. It would just come up as think crime. <laughs> it would be, nothing in it would be allowed under the party's guise. The language didn't allow for it. And so to give a hopeful note, after watching that Winston failed or, or he died loving Big Brother, is that it seems like eventually, sometime after 1984, that Oceania does fall based on what the appendix is telling us. So that, that's all I wanted to say. Yeah. The <clears throat> I've literally read this book three times in the last year. It's it's one of my favorite books. And every time I read it, there's something else that that comes out of it. Um it, it's a real life masterpiece. And every time I read it, it it gets better. So I, I'll probably read it again soon. Yeah. There's another tidbit. I've never seen the film 1984. Um, it's something that I was looking at earlier and I wanted to go watch. The actor who plays Winston in the movie 1984 is John Hurt. And you oh. might recognize John Hurt from another actually fantastic dystopian story. It's actually one of my favorites. Um, and it's actually good. And he is one of the main leaders of the party in V for Vendetta. Yeah. And uh, which I find a little bit fun. Um, but I, that's, yeah, just a little odd moment there. Yeah, that is ironic that he went from yeah the, the man fighting against Big Brother to Big Brother. <laughs> so yeah. that's awesome. Cool. Um. Well, that's all I got. Uh, do you guys yeah. have anything else? No, this no, was We could good. probably talk about this for four more hours. So we totally want to do it. I want to cut it off. Because <laughs> <laughs> eventually it would cease to be civil discourse and it would be more. And another thing. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, we stayed under control pretty well tonight, given our uh, our differences. Yeah. So awesome. Well, that was good. It was it was a good book, um, good discussion, and I think it was very timely. And if you can't see, you know, one thing that that I was reading about Orwell is is that he didn't write this to be doom and gloom. He wrote this as a call to intellectual arms, so to speak, and say, hey, you know, just because this is how things could possibly be doesn't mean that's how they have to be. 
and uh, in that way, it's a very hopeful book, you know? Yeah. So well said. Well, Cameron, you want to lead us out since you brought us in? Yeah, let's do it. Um, yeah. Thanks everybody for listening in to dad bod history. Um, we will have another episode up for you next week. Follow along with us on wherever you um, consume a podcast. We've also got um, an IG or the gram uh, <laughs> handle. We're also on TikTok, Facebook, yeah. all of the all of the big boys. So really appreciate you guys following along with us. We are us not on that. LinkedIn. Ooh, but soon to be. But that's nope. the professionals network. I, yeah. Should we? No, I've got, I'm managing I mean, it's got to be ones. a resume builder, right? Yeah. For hey, all any, of us. Any of you can take over one of these accounts if you'd like and help me out. <laughs> Shots fired. <All> right. Seriously. <laughs> Good night, everybody. All right. Night.